0: Good evening. Uh, it's absolutely a pleasure for me to welcome you all for this very interesting Thinkers Dialogue today. And we have a very, very special friend and a guest, Whitney Johnson, who has joined us uh, from the US. Uh, an amazing person, in fact, I uh, distinctly remember that I met her about five or six years back in London. And uh, for some odd reason, we en- ended up uh, becoming great friends. We have been in touch uh, off and on. Uh, but I think the most memorable of all the things was that as a family we went to Taj Mahal uh, and uh, some places in India like uh, and it was just one of the most fantastic uh, experiences that I've had uh, learning from her uh, and uh, knowing so many things. In fact, uh, one of the most influential thoughts that I ever heard from her was the S curve. Uh, we of course dabbled into many, many interesting ideas at that point in time. We did not fortify it but I, I hope somewhere down the line when Whitney has more time uh, and uh, we can talk about those things as we go along. But uh, besides that, I think you should all know that uh, she's an amazing author. She's done three books, which are the best sellers. And then of course, Build an A-Team, then of course there's a book called Disrupt Yourself and then Do, Grow and Something, right? So that's- uh,
1: Your dream too, (laughs) was the first one.
0: Yeah, so there are those three books, and has written extensively with Harvard Business Review, with MIT Review, and then of course uh, she has worked very, very closely with the, one of the foremost thinkers in the world. From my point of view, one of the finest human beings, uh, and that is Clayton Christensen. Unfortunately, uh, he passed away a few years back, um, but I think one of the most amazing persons I have ever met. Uh, met. Uh, he was like a gentle giant, if I might actually say, like, but uh, a huge huge personality in his own right and his work in that area of uh, disruptive innovation and that is where I see that Whitney has had huge impact on her thinking as well uh, and I, I see that and she, they've worked together in terms of creating an enterprise to uh, really uh, uh, what do you call investing in companies and has done, has done. you've done some amazing sets of investments as well which I do see in uh, and think about. Uh, so that's what Whitney Johnson is and then of course she heads uh, wlj advisors and she's worked with fortune 500 companies so uh, if you see if you see any meaningful ceo who's done some great job or does some great work uh she that person must have been coached by whitney at some point in time I would so that that's where it is so whitney uh thanks a lot for joining us today it's just a pleasure and an honor to have you on this uh, show
1: uh, fact, oh oh I'm, I'm so happy to be here on that and i it makes me so thrilled to hear that you and Neera enjoyed that trip to the Taj Mahal as much as I did. I have all these wonderful photos from that, from that journey. And you were so gracious when, um, yeah, and just, just for everybody, this is so fun. So we met at Thinkers 50, like five or six years ago, and we randomly were sitting next to each other and just started up a conversation. And then you were so kind in 2018 when I launched Build an 18 to have me over to India, and then we got to go to the Taj Mahal, and it was it was just so lovely. So thank you. Um, like right back at you in terms of reciprocating the, the sentiments.
0: Thank you, thank you, Whitney. So we'll quickly dive into the uh, conversation. Now. So Whitney, uh, how's been this last one year for you? Because that that's where a lot of your work would also come into okay. in like experiences, how you really look at things. But just tell me more about how, how was the last one year for you?
1: Yeah, it's such a great question on it. So I, I was reflecting on this. I remember back in March when the world just started to shut down. And um, well, it started to shut down in places outside of the United States earlier than March. But in March, we started to feel it here. And I remember having a couple, I remember it being a few days, my children who are the ultimate truth tellers, remember it being a couple of weeks, but I had a couple of weeks where I was very frightened and I thought, oh no, you know, is the world coming to an end and what does this mean for my business and what does this mean, you know, financially and all those different things. And are we going to get COVID? Um, And so I had a couple of weeks where that was the case. But then I remember thinking to myself very clearly, this is showtime for me. Like I am talking about personal disruption. Every single day of my life, I'm saying to you and to anybody who will listen, if you want to manage in disruption, if you want to thrive in disruption, you have to disrupt yourself. And so it was at that point, I made this very conscious choice of, so what am I going to do here? Am I going to choose Am I going to choose fear or am I going to choose hope? And my most conscious way of doing that and then I'll talk about the rest of the year but this was really the anchoring moment for me, is I decided that I was going to do a LinkedIn live every day for 16 days straight, and I was just going to show up and say, "I know there's chaos out there, but I'm going to be calm, and for these few minutes together, we are going to be calm." every day for 16 days. I did it on Saturday. I did it on Sunday. And that was really the beginning for me of setting the tone for the rest of the year. It didn't mean that our business didn't change dramatically. Revenue dropped precipitously last year. Of course it would. Um, But it also, but it did set the tone for me from a professional standpoint, and I'll talk about personal in just a minute, of saying, what are we going to do with this? We talk about disruption. Am I able to eat my own cooking how will I deal with this disruption and how am I going to disrupt myself so that really set the tone for the business and we thought about how do we pivot it what do we do differently clearly I wasn't going to be doing any speaking on a stage and so how are we going to change our vision uh, business um then that's professionally and personally um we were fortunate we were able to quarantine none of us got COVID so I'm very very grateful for that Um, and one of the gifts of COVID for me was the fact that we spent a lot of time together as a family. We have two college age children. They were home all summer. We were in close quarters. And so we got to practice figuring out what, how are we going to work with each other? How are we going to talk to each other as adults? Because me saying, you know, go make your bed does not fly at this point. So how are we going to navigate that? And so it was a really great opportunity for us to practice Figuring out what's our relationship going to look like as adults, and that was really a big gift. And I think the other gift was um, just having a routine. You know, I usually travel a lot, so it gave me a lot of opportunity to practice. So, what do I want to do when I get up in the morning? What do I want to do after that? And so that was also another gift. So, so yes, it was hard, but if I really believe what I say, I I found a way to thrive in disruption and use this as a catalyst to make make improvements personally in our family and in our business
0: so uh, Whitney you make a very important point you know like uh, you would, you did rediscover or disrupt the relationship that you were having with young children Like yeah. tell more about that like because that, that would be a fascinating experience and uh, how did you really go about it what what is it that what were the challenges that you saw or coming or faced yeah as you were talking to young adults uh,
1: yeah, so so we have two children, and I'll, I'll talk about one with my son, and then one with my daughter, and they were both very very different challenges. So, so actually, a big one first of all is remember when there were all of the the, the whole racial inequality thing, just you know blew up and so I remember as a family I did a lot of studying around what does racial equality look like and we had a number of Sundays where we'd sat down and I said we're going to watch these videos and we're going to talk about it and and really took that time to be thoughtful about not just educating myself but educating our family. so that's one thing that it looked like is and putting in place these practices of checking in with each other on we, we do it on Sunday afternoon after church So that was the first thing. Now, in terms of my son, you know, I had a lot more interaction with my son. He's an oldest child. He's very determined in some ways, somewhat like me. And so we sometimes, you know, did this. And so we had an opportunity for, he would say things and I'd say, you know, that hurt my feelings. Let's talk about it. And then he'd say, oh, I feel terrible. I did not mean to hurt your feelings. So what do we want to do? How do we want to navigate that? So that was one, you know, opportunity with my son of just figuring out how do we communicate with each other when we disagree with each other, um, when we hurt each other's feelings, etc. And And it really has borne fruit. I, I can think of it Christmas time, again, when he was home, um, we were kind of sniping at each other and he sat me down and said, hey mom, you know, I don't want it to be like this the whole vacation. Can we just talk about this? And basically, what he said to me is, "You're kind of micromanaging me a little bit. You're just still trying to treat me like I'm 14. Can you stop doing that? Or when you do need to say something, can you pull me aside?" It made a huge difference. The whole rest of that vacation was just just a delight for us because we had figured out those rules of engagement. On the other side of it, we have a daughter who um, who is now 20 and very very much a peacemaker very much you know we'll just sort of go along because because that's the easy thing to do and sort of keep peace she's very much like my husband and so the challenge with her was to give her an opportunity to practice speaking up I don't agree with you let's talk about this and her practicing that and having enough frequency and repetition so that she's actually gotten better at it and so so again totally different situations but that's that's what I mean is that close quarters um you know some people wanted to sort of tear the other person's hair out we use it as an opportunity that constraint that disruption to figure out how are we going to have relationships with each other because we know we want to love each other we know we want to care about each other you know for the rest of you know our our decades on this planet and beyond that Um, and so that to me was a big gift
0: so that, that's fascinating, uh, you know, like I probably went through a similar set of motions uh, with my two boys who were a handful, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I think similar sets of experiences there. But moving on, you know, like you said, of course, there was this huge drop in revenues. There there was this very important time when you were really trying to rediscover
1: uh, yeah.
0: as to how your business needs to uh, run. So what, what what is it that you were really looking at? Because everything just changed because the business models that were operating just uh, got decimated over a period of time everything was effectively becoming virtual uh, there was this re- there was this market disruption which was absolutely huge uh, mm-hmm. how do you really look at that situation
1: well i think the first thing is we just said okay what what is going away right what what's gone um so we said okay speaking probably for two years you know where i fly to India, or I fly to Australia, or I fly to New York, and they, you know, they pay me to speak on a stage, that is gone. So I needed to, and that was an easy one, because you just knew it was gone. Um, So that was, that was the first thing is, all right, so that's gone. Now, sort of, there's these iterations where initially we thought, well, let's go online, right? But the challenge with that was, is that immediately everyone wanted to go online. So now you're an economist on it. You know that now you've got this oversupply. There's demand, but you've also got an oversupply because everyone's going online. And we actually had a misstep where we thought, well, let's do a course and let's have it be online. And we quickly discovered, well, no one wants to pay for that because they don't have to pay for it. And so that was an interesting um, challenge for us. So the, the things that we ended up thinking about is, okay, so how do we, what, what do we want our business to look like in the future? How can we create value in the future beyond today? So one of the things we found is that amidst all this disruption, guess what? People need coaching. So I was already a coach. I already, we already had a team of coaches, but now we realized, okay, so People want coaching more than ever. So, so yes, you can get lots of free things online, but people at the very time that there's sort of this mass mass availability, more than ever people want that personal touch. And so we found that there was a lot of demand for whether it was individual coaching or team coaching or cohort coaching. And so we just sort of watched what was happening. Also watched what people were coming to us for and allowing the market to give us information about what people needed.
0: So when you say that you were trying to watch as to what people were wanting or whatever, how, how do you think uh, you really got, what, what was that real peg uh, that, that transformed your thinking that, yes, they want that personal coaching or this is where we can actually help? Because that's yeah. a very important message or a hint that you were probably getting from the market.
1: Yeah, I think I, I would like to say so. My business partner and I. So interestingly enough, my business partner, her name is Amy Humble. She formerly was the chief of staff for Jim Collins. So you know, good, good to great thinking. And and so we we just started watching. I mean, one of our first aha's was people would say to us, and this was prior to COVID, but they would say, "Well, who are your clients?" Right? And we initially said, "Well, our clients are." people who are going through massive change and don't want to change, but then we actually started looking at who was hiring us, like who was actually hiring us to do work for them. And we realized, oh, there are people that want to grow. There are individuals who want to grow. There are teams who want to grow. There are companies and organizations who want to grow, whether they're startups or or large businesses. So I think that's the first thing that we really just said, who is coming to us and asking for our help and who is willing to pay us for our help. And I think that was really the important pivot point for us, and I think the other pivot point for us was you know the s curve that you mentioned a minute ago is up until that time I was you know talking about the s curve and it's a, a great little s curve of learning. You can use it to think about individual growth, but we found that whenever I talked about it with people, it was incredibly useful and valuable, and so we said. Well, people are saying they want this, don't just draw it for me. Can you come up with a tool or a technology that I can use it with my teams? And so we started really um, you know, developing a tool, an S-curve dashboard where you can get those insights with your teams. And now I'm just having this memory as we're talking. I think you said to me three years ago, Whitney, you should do more with the S-curve. And I clearly did not listen at the time. Didn't you say that?
0: Yes, I remember saying that. Yeah, that yes, cover is going, going to be the most important thing that you must have developed.
1: <laughs> well, there you go. So we, we, we are now doing it. And in fact, my next book that's coming out um, next year is, foc- is really focusing on that. Like it's been in the background and now it's going to be in the forefront and really looking at that as a tool for teams and organizations who want to, to grow in a smart way.
0: Let's talk about the S curve a little more. You see, like, okay. as I as I remember the S curve, it, it was about three things there, right? It was yep. in experience, engagement, and mastery. If, if I remember it uh, correctly.
1: Oh, uh, good memory.
0: And if if you're really talking about it, like, how how do these stages differ? What happens? Like, what is it that you're really trying to? bring out when you're talking about the S curve.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let me give you just a teeny bit of background for people who are the uninitiated. Most people are familiar with it. So the S curve is something that was popularized by EM Rogers in 1962. So it's been around for a long time. And then when um when I was investing along with Clayton and his son Matt, we used it to help us figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted. And then obviously people have used it for COVID. Like you know you figure out how, how is something going to to evolve. And it's, it's the um, logistic growth equation. But the big aha that I had as we were using it for investing was that the S curve could help us understand how we learn, how we grow and how we develop. Okay. So I'm going to draw this for you. So you've got the, you've got an S, you're doing something brand new. So for example, COVID pushed all of us to the bottom of a new S curve. And so what's happening at the bottom of of an S-curve from a mathematical perspective is growth is happening. In fact, it's happening at a pretty rapid rate, but because it's not discernible, the progress, it feels slow and it looks slow. And so what that means, you're in a place of inexperience, you're likely to get discouraged or get really impatient because you want it to go faster. And so that has all sorts of implications for you as an individual to say, okay, I'm discouraged right now. Of course I'm discouraged. I'm inexperienced. I haven't figured this out. What do I need to do to go faster? And it also means if you've got you know a team of people and you're sort of done that dashboard, you can say, huh, I've got a really inexperienced person here. Maybe the next couple of people I hire need to be in the sweet spot or in mastery to support this person at the launch point. So you're here you are, then you do the work, then you accelerate and you move into that steep part of that S. And that's the sweet spot that you were talking about, the engagement part, where before it was like felt really slow. Now it's going super fast. It's hard, but it's not too hard. All your neurons are firing. And you're like, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. And that's where we want to spend most of our time. You might call it in flow. And the challenge there, if you've got a team, is you say, All right, we're all in the sweet spot. Everything's working. But before you know it, you can all move to the top and you haven't thought about what are you going to do next. So that's the sweet spot. Then you get mastery. That is a place where you figured it out. You're at the top of the S, but now what's happening is that growth has actually slowed. And so now you're in this place, you've got this dilemma, the innovator's dilemma, but it's with people of like, if I stay here, I could get pushed off. If I do something new, it's still pretty scary, but then you've got to make a decision. What are you going to do to challenge yourself to either move back in the sweet spot or jump to a new curve or stay there and find a way to turn this from success into this place of really contribution and expanding your influence across an organization. So there's the inexperience, there's the engagement, there's the mastery, and it's really a model for you to think about how do we grow as individuals, as teams, as organizations.
0: So when you talk about this S-curve, you know, like Whitney, what I hear you saying is that we have to perpetually redefine us, ourselves as we go along yes. and, and so how many times would that need to happen because what, what 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 you're saying is deeply embedded in the idea is that you will have to continuously learn and really work towards it so how many times in your career will you have to really look at it or we are just on a smaller s curve all the while and we're just trying to redefine ourselves
1: yeah oh it's such a great question on it so i you know i wanted to say um infinitely but um so if you think about it it's it's really a fractal because your your life is an s-curve your career is an s-curve every time you get a new um job you're on a new s-curve every time you take on a new role you're on a new s-curve every time you take on a new project it's a new s-curve certainly relationships are an s-curve although in the best relationships you don't want to jump to a new s-curve and then you could also argue that every day is an s-curve and so the way I think about it is almost like this escalator where it's this continuous pathway to your potential, but it's like you go up and then you move, then you go up and you move. And so so there's this sort of grace or, or elegance to it for us as as individuals, but again, as a team, and then with any project that you take off.
0: So how would this escalate fit into politicians? I have to ask you that question. With oh,
1: Oh, let's talk about it. Well, you know what? I think you should answer that question. Or do you want me to riff and then you can poke holes in it?
0: Yes, I I'll go after you.
1: Yeah. So, let's think about it for a second. I think that, you know, one of the challenges for a politician is if you're if you're running for office, right? You you're running for office is an S curve because the skills that you need to get elected are very different than the skills that you actually need as a politician. Um but once, let's say, once you've gotten elected. So when you first get into office, you're you're there, and you are inexperienced. You don't know how anything works. You don't know who the power brokers are. I was actually just reading a biography by Doris Kearns Goodwin about Lyndon Baines Johnson, and how he was actually a master at this figuring out the networks and who he needed to know really quickly. But that's that's for a politician. Initially, you don't quite know where how to get anything done but then you figure it out and then you're going to get into the sweet spot where you're actually pretty effective you know you not only know what you want to do but you now know who you need to talk to and what it needs to look like and how you need to manage the process to be effective to make an effect actual change then the challenge is when you get to the top of that s-curve and i would say that someone who knows that they're not going to get you know they're not going to get re-elected or they're just tired they've been in office they've been elected over and over and over again they're getting a little bit bored but they don't actually know what else to do with their life and so they become increasingly effective at which point they probably should have stepped aside and let someone else move into that role but i do think that you can get to that place where, and you can see it, right? You can see when there are politicians dialing in as opposed to still incredibly engaged and energetic and want to make something happen. So that's how I would look at it. What about you?
0: No, so, but I have a follow-on question on this.
1: Yeah, okay. A of
0: them actually. And then when you talk about an S-curve for a politician, I yeah. would rather see that there is a societal S-curve as well. So there is some kind of a collision that might actually be happening or you have to follow that S-curve. Uh, okay. how how would you really bring those together because for a success of a politician for getting elected into office he has huh. to understand as to the, what is that collective societal curve maybe and where does he actually fit it?
1: oh right right so it's the it's the context and the ecosystem yeah so that's a great question you know what's interesting about that um so let me let me make a comment and then i'll i'll answer your question so typically you'll think about you know let's say for you and your well, let's say for me and my career, right? I need to look at, okay, so what is the ecosystem in which I'm operating, right? Is it conducive to my growth? Do we overcome? Let's say it's a role in business. And then there's also the question is, what am I doing to contribute to that ecosystem? What you're saying though, and I think this is interesting and maybe it applies regardless, is that from a politician's perspective, they've got to figure out what is the ecosystem that I'm operating in and what do I need in order to be effective? But then you're also saying, but what are you, as the politician, going to do to contribute to the ecosystem? And so its I think it's a both and in either either instance, actually.
0: And if you actually, let me give you a hypothetical customer who comes to you who's going to be looking at re-election in four years. Yep. Uh, and that hypothetical customer could actually be President Trump. Yeah. How are well, you really? <laughs> I have to ask you that question. You can, you can ignore that question if you want to, but if, if he has to redefine himself, yeah, how, how should he do that?
1: Because oh, he's like, a he in a tough himself.
0: situation. Uh, of course, he has done good things, of course, as president. Not that he, he right. was really ineffective in all things. He's yeah. done some great things as well. Uh, but then he has to redefine himself. Uh, how how yeah. would he really want to look at that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so uh, you know. Actually, I wanted to say something here really quickly. I, I think for me, and I, you didn't ask me this question, but I I think that for me, I care more in a politician about their character than actually even what laws they affect or not. So that, that matters for me when I'm voting. So let me just say that. So um, whether they do some good things or not. Um, so if you're reinventing yourself, I think what you have to do is you basically say, OK, I just got pushed off an s curve, right Whenever you lose your job, whenever you get fired and a political candidate got fired right if they didn't get reelected, you have to ask yourself, okay, so if I'm going to move on to this new s curve, what is an S curve first of all that I want to be on and if I were to get to the top, is that you know is that what I want? And then you need to just start asking yourself some questions of like, okay, if I want to get there, what do I need to do to get there like can I get there? First of all, do I think it's achievable? Do I think it's, it's possible? Can I see myself in that role? Then you want to ask yourself questions like, well, how does this sync with my identity? And what, um, if I make changes, am I comfortable with those changes? Am i comfortable not only for me personally, like my sense of values and my sense of purpose, but is this an identity that other people will buy into, right? If you've been, you know, if you've been a, um, A musician your whole life and everybody knows you as a musician and now you want to suddenly become a neurosurgeon people are probably going to be a little bit concerned about you operating on them so like what's the identity piece and so i think what i would say is the biggest challenge for someone in that situation is they have to say to themselves i want to reinvent myself and i'm willing to do it but i've got to do the work of persuading everybody else that they like the reinvented being. So because what you're doing is you're saying, I'm jumping to an S-curve and I've got to persuade you on it to jump to that S-curve as well. And so what am I going to do to persuade you that it is, in fact, safe for you to jump to that S-curve and that I have the credibility and the competence to be effective in that role?
0: Beautifully said, uh, Whitney. But you also made a very remarkable point, you know, like we need to learn when to step aside. Uh, because what you're really saying is like that is going to be true for politicians or that is going to be true for leaders in business as well or a corporate peer absolutely but i think identification of that point in your life becomes one of the most important factors because you know if you know when to step aside because you will know what projects to do what not to do where to engage where to disengage that becomes one of the most important things for a person how do you do
1: you know it's interesting. Um, I you know my background is in the stock market and so I think of things oftentimes in stocks and kind of from a momentum standpoint and I do think you know people will ask me well how do I know when it's time for me to jump to the top of a new S curve? How do I know when it's time to sell a stock? And, and 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 people and stocks they all have momentum and I do think that one of the ways that you know when it's time to step aside, when it's time to do something new is you can actually feel it. Like you, you, you can feel it in your in your gut, and you know that you've learned what you needed to learn. You know you've done what you came to do, and you can also feel that if you stay there, you're going to. It's just it's it's become about your ego. It's no longer about contributing and serving. It's become about your ego, and because you're staying there, you are standing in the way of other people having an opportunity to contribute as well. And in fact, by staying there, you are going to stagnate. Um, as a human being. And so I think I think that you I think you you uh, at a very basic level, I think you can feel it, and you can also start seeing when it's a problem because you start dialing it in. You start finding yourself. Other people are trying to 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 be productive and you start quashing their hopes and their dreams and ambitions because you're now competing with them because you want to, you know, there was a famous movie, it's like years and years and years and old called Sunset Boulevard, where, you know, this aging diva just wants to crush the person who's coming up behind her. And so it's really that question of, are you getting to the point where you're, are you developing people or are you trying to compete with people? And that's a place where, you know, you've started to stagnate and it's time for you to take on something new.
0: Very very interesting, Whitney. are you really hinting at a very important idea that you've shared in your work uh, called intellectual entitlement? How yeah. do you away with intellectual entitlement? Is it is it that what you're really trying to hint at?
1: Yeah, um, I think it's definitely entitlement. I think that it can be intellectual, but it, I think it's bigger and broader than that is this feeling of, you know, um, I I got here, I deserve it, and this is the way things should always be. And that, that's an entitlement, because then we're saying at some level, I'm more important than other people around me. And what I want is more important than the greater good, because that's really what we're hinting at as we're talking, right? What is the greater good for, for the team? Because this can be just on a, in a role, right? right, where you know it's time for you to go do something new and you don't want to do it. Like, so what's the greater good for your team, for your family? I mean, this is what happens with parents when they won't let their children grow up. This is what happens. They won't let them grow up. They won't let them go out on their own. And so um, greater good for team, greater good for family, greater good for company, greater good for the planet is that willingness to say, I've done what I can do in this role and now I need to let someone else do something in that role. Now here's the important and very, very important, let me say it again, and the very, very important news is you're stepping aside. It's not a zero-sum game. There's something else for you to go do. You just have to do the work of figuring out what that is. So, this isn't like you step aside and you float off into the sunset and your life is terrible. It's like, no, you just have to figure out what's next. And you may not want to do that because it's hard and scary, but that's what happens when you disrupt yourself and move to a new S curve. So, it's making way for someone else here because you've got a new S curve that you need to go jump to.
0: And, Whitney, you know, like you made a very important point as we were beginning our conversation that was on. Racial equity. Yes. Right? And I I think that that's a thing which has really hit us very hard in the last few months. Uh, Yeah. But if you really look at it, like, do do you see any kind of convergence? Or, for lack of a better word, like, do do you think there is a collision between entitlement and racial uh, inequity that actually exists? Like, is it driven by that kind of fundamental thinking?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. I do. I think, I think we, because because if, we, because if you're not entitled and, you know, you believe that all of us are created equal, okay, so I know I'm imposing my own value system, right, you know, Declaration of Independence, that we are all created equal. Um, when I'm entitled, I believe, um, you know, that uh, some people... Well, actually, I'll give you a great example. This is a great, this is a good example. I remember, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I will say it because I think this is useful. When we went to visit the Taj Mahal, do you remember there was a sign that let some people go first before other people? Do you remember that? Yes. And and I, I don't remember, was it because was it you were white? I don't remember what it was, but it was something that put me in a privileged place. I don't remember it. So whatever it was, And I remember there was a piece of me that thought, oh, good, I get to go first. I didn't deserve it. It wasn't fair. But in that moment, I was being entitled. I had privilege that I did not deserve. And so I think that that entitlement is that we have something and we believe that we deserve it and that we should get to hold on to it. And when we are in that place, again, we're trying to protect that position. And so when there are other people that want, you know, want and need and should have opportunity, instead of opening the door and making that happen, we resent it and try to protect our position. Um, I I think you probably come across this book, it's by Isabel Wilkerson called Caste, and she talks about a caste system. The caste system in the United States, the caste system in India, the caste system in Nazi Germany. It was very revealing, very compelling, and what we're saying when we do that is we're saying, I kind of like the caste system. Because I like to be above other people, it takes a lot of humility and a lot of um, you know willingness back to this idea of an S curve to say I am going to go jump to a new S curve and I'm going to figure out what does it mean to think about racial equity. What does that look like for me, and what does that mean I have to give up if I in fact believe that this is important, but in that giving up, what do I gain? Because there are things that we gain. It just not may not be obvious at first.
0: And- You know, like, Whitney, we've had this chat sometime in the past as well, but I I would really want to push you into that direction as well. Uh, You know, like, when you talk about the S-curve, I I find it to be such a fascinating idea. Uh, Have you ever thought of really implementing it to countries? Because, you know, like, I I think we had this conversation. and I Yeah,
1: let's do it. I think I'm ready now. Do you want to do it together?
0: Yes, absolutely. We should do that. Like, doing it for countries is going to be so important. If you are able yeah. to define as to how countries go, go through that S-curve. Yeah. because If I'm able to redefine a country itself every 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years, of course, the S-curve is going to be longer here. Yeah. But if
1: yeah. you're able
0: to identify the factors which drive it, don't you think yeah. it'll be a fascinating thing for how this fighting goes? I
1: agree. I mean, this is much more your ex- area of expertise. I mean, you're an economist by training. I think it could be fascinating. And when you said that, what, made, what I thought was interesting is we had Roger Martin on the podcast a couple months ago, and I don't know if you're familiar with his work, obviously. And he talked about this idea of, of, you know, this adaptive system that you don't want to go for perfection. And he said one of the reasons that the healthcare system in Canada has worked is because they don't try to make it perfect. They just know they're going to have to change it every ten years. And when you just said that, I just had two things go together of your idea and what he said is thinking about okay, so. We're at the top of our S-curve in terms of the system as it stands today. It's time to rethink it, jump to the bottom of a new one, climb that, and then you've got that continual evolution. Yeah, super fun. Uh,
0: yes, yeah, absolutely. Like, looking forward to really collaborating on this. Yeah. But okay. that is okay. what the next probably thing is going to be. But you, know, like, you, you made a very important point in your work. And if I say it right, it is about celebrating failure or learning mm-hmm. failure. Yes, but you know, like there are going to be societies which are very brutal on failure. Mm-hmm. How do we really let people learn from failure? How do we celebrate failure? Because failure is also a stepping stone to a right. next curve or a new discovery of yourself.
1: Yeah, you know, Amit, I think I I've thought a lot about this, um, a lot, and I actually. And kind of changing my view on this a little bit in the sense of, I remember having a conversation with Alan Mulally, who was the former CEO of Ford. And he, when I asked him what he did with failure, he said, I don't actually see failure. And that was actually really interesting for me because, and I kept pushing him, I'm like, no, but what do you do when you fail? And he's like, I don't see failure. It's like, wow, okay. That's interesting. What do I do with it? Because he wouldn't—he wouldn't let me off the hook. He's like, I don't see it. And so, one of the things that I've been really thinking about, and to answer your question of what do we do in cultures, I think we can't change a culture, but we can change ourselves. And so, I think what we do is we start with this idea of okay, so what is my relationship with failure, and why do I take it so hard? Um, And so, one of the questions that I started asking myself is, well, I take failure hard. Because I think it's about me when something doesn't work, like it's about my identity. And so I feel a sense of shame that I am somehow at some level worthless now, like I like it's obliterated my sense of self. And so one of the big challenges for me and I think and I would offer to anybody who's listening is this idea of, okay, so when something doesn't work, how can you separate yourself from the thing that didn't work? And and understand that, of course, your identity is tied to it, because from the time we were this big, it was like, you got an A in school, you are so smart. And it meant that if you didn't get an A in school, you were so dumb. So our identity got very tied to it. But if we can start to separate out and go, I am not what I do, which then means that if everything I do is now a big experiment, And my ego and my sense of self is never on the table, even when everybody else thinks it's a failure, our identity will still be intact, our our sense of self is intact. And so what I've been thinking a lot about is this idea of celebrate is, and this has helped me a ton, is to move into this place of I'm experimenting. Not doing a pilot, I'm not doing a test, I'm experimenting. And that allows me to make a lot more mistakes. And basically, say it's not failure, I'm just learning. So, number one is do that internal work of separating your sense of self from what you do, and then start having this mindset of, okay, if this didn't work, that means I just learned something. And if I just learned something, I've got this constraint that's going to allow me to get better faster. So, how do I make as many mistakes as possible? How do I experiment as much as possible so that I can get better faster? But it's okay because my ego's not on the table, my ego's over here, my ego's out of the equation. We're just focused on moving up that S-curve faster. And everything that didn't work, that gives us information to get faster, better, to get better, faster.
0: Mm-hmm. And me, you know, like, you make a very important assertion, but don't you think, uh, or I, I would like to say that getting fired from your job, at least once in your life, becomes so important because mm-hmm. that actually one makes us learn as to how to deal with failure, how to probably rediscover ourselves. So, and that is probably also reflected in things in terms of, Entrepreneurs who started and who failed to begin with, they ended up becoming hugely successful. Uh, so, getting fired from jobs—do you think how how important would that be?
1: Yeah. Oh, I have two thoughts on that. Number one, I think I think we all need to have, and you know, I, I think we all have to have experiences in our lives. Um, if we believe that life is, you know, about developing as an entire human being that just strip us bare. I I think we need those sorts of emotional experiences so that we are forced to just say, who am I and what do I care about? And, and so I, and I think being fired is one of those experiences because for us, work is so much an important part of our lives. And, and if it's a good job, we love the work. And so when we get fired, we feel like at at a very visceral level that we have emotionally been killed. I mean, it's that painful. And so I would say, you know, just if we can be aware of that, in fact, that's the experience that we're having and just say, you know, this is a big deal. Like I get to make a big deal of this because this is a big deal and honor how that feels. We have to move on, but we can start by honoring how it feels. I think that's really important. Um, the thing that I would say, though, about being fired is I have this hypothesis on it, and you can tell me if you agree with it or not, which is because I've been fired from a job. Lots of people have been fired from jobs, is that when we are fired or laid off, we were actually either at the top of the S-curve or on the wrong S-curve, and we knew it. Like, we actually knew it. Deep in our gut, we knew it, and we would not jump. We were unwilling to jump, and so the universe gave us a nudge. That's my okay. hypothesis.
0: I, I think I fully agree with you on that, because in your mind, you would probably know uh, that you're probably on the wrong curve, but you don't have the courage to take that jump or make that leap. So right. the question that arises here is, even if we know that we are on the wrong curve, how do we really instill that courage in ourselves to really move forward?
1: Yeah, well, I think, I think there's a pattern recognition, right? I, I, think, I think you start to say, oh, okay, yeah, I've seen, I've seen this film before. In fact, I was in this film before. Maybe I need to, you know, this isn't working. I need to go do something else. And, and you do get better at it. I mean, just a really simple example. This isn't getting fired, but, you know, we took a vacation in December. And I, in the past, have been really bad at taking vacations because I just want to work the whole vacation and then I'm not rested. And so I started to say to myself, okay, taking a vacation is like jumping to a new S curve. And so, what do I need to do to prepare to jump to this new S curve? What am I going to do to allow myself to be at the launch point of the S curve? And so, just like with, um, you know, when you jump to a new S curve, I do think that we can start saying to ourselves, oh, here it comes, starting to get a little bit bored. I'm starting to dial it in. I've been in this role for a while. Um, I'm starting to look around, not quite as engaged, starting to want other people to get out of the way, starting to say that's not how we do it here. Those are all signals for us or, you know, or or we're not we're just not gaining momentum. And they're like, OK, probably time for me to do something, because if I don't do something, that plateau that looks really fun, really comfortable, I'm going to get pushed off of it. It's going to become a precipice.
0: And then, of course, you end up saying uh, that you, we have to begin our own disruption.
1: Yes. Uh, yes. And,
0: and how do we do that? Like because that that's the biggest takeaway that we have we have to draw here, right? But yeah. How do how do I begin my own destruction? Because either I'll make myself redundant and rediscover myself or the yeah. world will actually throw me off the cliff.
1: Right. Right. And obviously if you can plan for it, it goes much better. Because if you can plan for it, you can actually pack the parachute. If you get pushed off the cliff, well you've got to figure out how to get a parachute and flight. So So this idea of, okay, you're on an S-curve. You need to jump to the bottom of a new one. And again, this isn't like down here. It's just you keep growing. Um, We developed a framework, the Framework of Personal Disruptions. This is all leveraging everything that I learned from Clayton is, you know, seven accelerants for when you're ready, it's time to do something new. What what are accelerants or guardrails? And so you're looking at, okay, well, how do I play where other people aren't playing? I want to go do something where... Uh, yes I might have to compete but how can I create a niche for myself how can I take on market risk which will allow me to be more effective or more successful And how do I make sure I'm playing to my strengths sometimes we want to go do really hard things that don't leverage what we do instinctively and innately well and so we want to figure out what do I do well like really well and make sure that whatever we're doing new leverages that how do I embrace the constraint of oh guess what? I really want to go work in India, but my husband works here, so I probably need to find a job in the United States. And then be willing to do things like step back to grow. Sometimes if you're going to go do something new and you want to do it, you can't just go from here to here. You have to take a step back and then slingshot forward. So there are things that you can do when you know that you're there to be thoughtful and deliberate about it so that, so you've got a little bit of a softer landing when you're, when you're jumping to do something. new.
0: Mm -hmm. You also make a very important point, uh, Whitney, and that's about contribution.
1: Yes. Like, and
0: of course, uh, I'm sure uh, you've worked with Clayton and you, you, you must have talked about it a lot of times. Like, the one thing very clearly is that how do you measure your success as Clayton would have actually said it? And yeah. of course, uh, how, how would you really want to say as to how do we measure the contribution that we are making? Because that could be very satisfying because at the end of the day, a man is known by the contribution he makes. right
1: Mm -hmm. yeah you know it's interesting that you say that so i i don't know if you're familiar with tom rath but he wrote strength finders 2 and he um on the podcast probably about a year ago and he said something that was really profound for me and, and and building on what you just quoted from clayton which is he said contribution is the sum of what grows when you're gone i just thought that was beautiful and i think that really does a lovely job I think, you know, Clayton would talk about how will you measure your life and what are your metrics of success and how are you gonna gauge if you've had a successful life or not? I mean, for me, I think Tom really, you know, summarizes and encapsulates that so beautifully is, you know, when we're gone from this project, when we're gone from this role, when we're gone from the planet, what is going to grow because we were there? How, how did we create an ecosystem where other people could flourish and develop? And I think that um, that's where we get the meaning in our life. Uh, And and I think, you know, I went, I had the opportunity to go to Clayton's funeral and it was very moving and very beautiful. I mean, it was a full, it was a church that was full of hundreds and hundreds of people coming to pay tribute to him because so many people felt like he had, for him, he felt like when I go have my talk to God, he's going to ask me, how did you make other people's lives better? And clearly. He had accomplished that based on all the people that were in that room.
0: Mm-hmm. And if I if I have to really ask you a further question, this: when we go to God and say that okay, now this is how I've contributed, what is it that we should be looking at in terms of creating mm-hmm. that measure? Because that that's a very important one. Because each one of us will have to discover that eventually.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. My husband and I were just talking about this yesterday, and I think that. I think it's, um, I think it, I think there's a couple of things here. One is that very simple question of, you know, are we good? (laughs) Kind of, are we good? And, and I think he will look at and say, here's where you started. Did you make progress? So he won't look at where we started because we all start in very different places. He'll look at us and say, with what you had what did you do with what you had? Where did you start and where did you end up? And when I say, where did you start and where did you end up? Are you as a human being, a better human being, a kinder human being, a more giving human being, a more honest human being than where you started? Um, What about your family? How did you treat your family? How did you treat your wife? How did you treat your husband? How did you treat your children? Were they better people because of you, and then I think he'll extend that out. And like, how did you treat the people that you work with? So I think it's, but it's a starting point and, and And the ending point is, are you and I, you and I, God, are we good? And I think we'll know it in an instant. Not are we perfect, but are we good? Am I on that path to being better and making progress? That's how I think about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And of course, like taking it a little step further, you know, like the contribution and how how you yeah, uh- like, measure but you know, like there is always a very important aspect of life, like as you grow older or as you're really moving through the curves, there is a lot of wisdom that gets into people, right? They, 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 they have that accumulation of experience. Not that they become redundant, uh, but there is something but, else that happens there. So how do you really look at it? Because what happens is like, I, I always think about this, like when firms will actually say we should retire the old people or we should retire the professors or whatever, yeah. But I always find that to be fairly obnoxious with an idea because I feel there is so much ideas that are embedded in their minds, uh, and we can still take so much out of it how how yeah. do you think of that?
1: you know I mean I think it's a both and because i I do think that there is some some fault on the part of someone who's younger and just wanting to retire people who are older. I think it's very it's very short sighted in not acknowledging the wisdom that someone who is older has. Um, So I think there's some element of it. But I also think that it is incumbent upon us that as we get older to keep growing. I mean, you and I both know people who are in their 70s and in their 80s and maybe even in their 60s who aren't growing anymore. Like they stopped growing when they were 50. And so you do want to retire them because they haven't jumped to a new S curve in a very long time. And and I think we could both argue when we know people that um, are in their 80s and in their 90s that no one wants to retire them because they are contributing at such a meaningful in such a meaningful way, and so. Um, So again, I think it's a both and I think we, you know, when we're younger, we need to be more open-minded and the older we get, the more open-minded we get to be older. But I do think it's also important that, um, I remember talking to Bob Proctor, who's a sort of rock star in the personal development world. And he said something that I thought was very powerful. He's like 86 now. He said, calm down, but don't slow down. And that to me was so impactful. He said, if you slow down," you will lose your momentum. Your ability to contribute will decrease, but you do need to calm down. You do need to, to grow up inside. And that, that's kind of become a mantra for me is how do I make sure I calm down as I get older, but I am not interested in slowing down?
0: That, that's so fascinating. You know, like uh, the way you're talking, you remind me uh, of, my, uh, what I call it, of my father who's still there with us, but I, I think he's just the most amazing person. In fact, he, he's not slowed down but he's one of the most amazingly calm people I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and right. still continues to work when he's about 75 and does an amazing job of it. Uh, but I, I think he comes as an inspiration, as you were saying. I, no one wants to retire
1: your father, right? No one wants to retire him. Of course. No,
0: mm-hmm. because mm-hmm.
1: he's still so growing.
0: Absolutely. That, that's, that's very powerful, you know. And then, uh, you know, like as, as you really uh, look at this whole idea of rediscovering and, and thinking, uh, what is it that you would like to tell young people? You know, like young people are always full of energy. Uh, it right. becomes very important for them as well to understand these ideas, because typically, what can happen is that when I'm in my thirties, I'm in my mid-career or whatever. Suddenly, these things can become very reflective. But for a young blood who's yeah. age twenty
1: years old, yeah,
0: uh, how, how do you really take them to these ideas?
1: So I would say I would say two things for when you're twenty. because there are two different things can happen depending on your personality I think probably more but two that I've identified one is is that you can be that person who is like afraid right you're at the launch point of your career and of your life and you're like I don't know if I can do it I'm not sure if I can do it I'm not sure if I've got it and so I would say to that cohort of individuals um Don't be afraid, just try things. You're supposed to not know what you're doing, but just be willing to try and just disrupt yourself a little bit every day so that you can make progress along that curve and and just be willing to explore. I fell in that camp, by the way. I was afraid to try this, I was afraid to try that, and I had to just sort of get dumped into things. But then there's another cohort of people who can be overconfident, that they're the launch point of the curve and they don't wanna be at the launch point, they just wanna go into the sweet spot today. And I would say to that cohort of people, be patient. There's, there's, there's some important things that are happening at this launch point of you figuring things out and you sorting this out and, and wondering and, and be patient and know that you're going to move into the sweet spot, but allow yourself to be here because there's some important things that you need to learn that are going to be foundational for you so that when you get into the sweet spot, you don't topple because you don't have the skills that you need. I mean, that, that's what to me is the Peter principle is when people move to curves too fast they don't have the skills to go underneath the foundation and so they're at risk of toppling. So if you're the less confident, I would say you can do more than you think you you can. You're more competent than you think you are. And if you're overconfident, I would say be willing to be patient and do some of this work of laying the groundwork because this is slow, it's slow for a reason. So honor that slow.
0: And toward, as we move towards the end of our interaction, yeah. I'll go back to where we started, like you were you were with your young kids uh, yeah. a young man and a young woman and you 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 know, you know like there is this very important thing that happens what you call as intergenerational conflict i mm-hmm. would rather say that like huge word but there is always that intergenerational idea conflict that will happen yeah how do you overcome this because this is about very distinct s curves very distinct way of looking at things because your perspectives would be so different from yeah. my perspective, like my young son can have a different perspective. I can have a different perspective. How do you bring those things together? Because this principle can be used so well in our lives as well. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, it's obviously something I thought a lot about. Um, I think the thing for me is number one is just be, first of all, be more willing to not be entitled and think that my opinion is the right opinion. And to be more willing to listen to what they have to say and what they think about the world. Um, you know, most kids have gotten pretty good at like not actually telling their parents what they think. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's the first thing. And the second thing, which is actually pretty hard is that when they do want to talk to you and they do want advice, it's almost always really inconvenient because you're tired. Um, be willing to be there for them to give them the advice or give them the counsel or mostly just to listen to them talk and process because Most of us like to process things out loud. So I would say we can solve it by basically by listening, like really listening. And it is so hard. I'm at the bottom of the S curve on that one, but I'm working on it.
0: (laughs) And Whitney, before we come to a close, one last question. What would you like to tell people to read? if 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 you have to ask them to read three things beyond your three books, what are those three things that you would ask them to read? Richard, we need to you as a person. Or yeah. okay.
1: All right. So the first one is obviously The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. Um, the second one, I would say, are sacred texts. So for me, it's the Bible and the Book of Mormon. It might be the Quran, I, But I think for me, reading sacred texts has absolutely defined me. And then the third one, I would say, um, that's really influenced my work is um, Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. So so Whit- those be my three.
0: Very nice, Whitney. This has just been such a fascinating conversation. Uh, I think I learned so much, and I, I think I'll have to go back and listen to this and really see as to how do I redefine my S-curve and rediscover myself as we actually go along. But I think we need to rediscover our S-curves and really start looking at the S-curve for countries as we talked about. Yeah. Let's connect yeah. that and be in right. touch, but thanks to right. me. It was such a pleasure and an honor to have you with us today.
1: Thank oh, thank you. you. It was a blast.
0: thank you bye-bye
1: bye-bye.